store now. I don't get to see that many people all the time. Uh, but there is something to be said. Maybe that could be a subject for next week about um, <laughs> the places where you get to, you know, just to impress. I mean, Freddie, Freddie Myers has been my dress, place just to impress. Tell you what. Uh, <laughs> not that anyone, like, says anything ever, right? But it's just... Uh, no. I know. We all avoid each other to, quite literally like Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I saw yeah. an Instagram or Tumblr thing. It was, um, well, I saw a screen cap of it on Facebook because I'm not on either of those others. It said, uh, <laughs> We need to retire the phrase, avoid it like the plague, because it turns out people don't do that. <laughs> avoid it on the plague? You mean get up in your face and spit in it? Sure. <laughs> you mean start yeah. licking door handles? <laughs> yeah, that's that's but, let's not forget that did happen. That did happen. Uh, oh really? I wasn't making that up. Dang. No, it did happen. No, you weren't uh, boy. I am Tammy. On the line is Althea in the studio is Sonia and we're wrapping it up. This has been the Gap. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll be back next week. Thank you so much. Thanks all. Thanks, Sonia. KABU is holding a training this Saturday, August 15th, for KABU volunteers interested in covering protests in our city for the KABU Evening News. The training will be virtual as the station remains closed due to the ongoing pandemic. If you are interested in learning how to cover protests as a KABU street reporter, contact our news director by emailing newsdirector at kboo.org. That email is newsdirector at kboo.org. You are listening to KBOO Portland. Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. On Tuesday, August 11th, the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, released a groundbreaking report entitled Unleashing the Power of Poor and Low-Income Americans. The report was produced by Robert Paul Hartley, an assistant professor of social work at Columbia University, and included a foreword by Shali Gupta Barnes, policy director of the Poor People's Campaign. The report uses nationally representative data to illustrate the potential voting power of low-income people in the United States. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, the were 140 million poor and low-income people in the United States. Now, amid rising unemployment and economic crises resulting from the pandemic, that figure is predicted to be much higher. The report found that organizing among the poor around an agenda that represents the concerns of the poor can fundamentally change the political map of the entire United States and lead to policies that are just and representative for all people. This is backed up by several key findings. In the 2016 presidential election, for example, there were 138 million voters out of 225 million eligible voters. 29 million of these voters were poor or low income, and there were an additional 34 million poor or low income people who were eligible but didn't vote. Also, looking at data from the 2016 presidential election, the report found that low-income eligible non-voters make up one-fifth or more of the electorate in seven states. 
if these potential low-income voters voted at a similar voting rate as higher-income voters did in the 2016 election, then they would match or exceed the presidential election margin of victory in 15 states. There were several groundbreaking findings in the report, but the conclusion is clear. Poor and low-income people have the power to change the country with their voices and their votes if their full voting potential is unleashed. Coinciding with the release of the report, the Poor People's Campaign and National Call for Moral Revival hosted a press briefing. Speakers included the joint coordinators of the Poor People's Campaign, the Reverend Dr. William Barber II and the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris. Also, first-time voters laid out why they're casting a ballot this year. Today, we bring you audio from that briefing in which you will hear more key findings from the study as well as commentary from impacted speakers. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. The Biden campaign says it raised about $26 million since announcing California Senator Kamala Harris will be joining the ticket. Biden and Harris made their debut as running mates Wednesday in Delaware. Harris took the opportunity to blast the Trump administration. Christopher Martinez reports. Harris took aim at the Trump-Pence administration, saying everything that people care about is on the line in this election. She blasted Trump for what she describes as mismanagement of the pandemic and the related economic crisis, as well as what she calls a moral reckoning with racism. Harris says Trump has made each of those challenges worse. He inherited the longest economic expansion in history from Barack Obama and Joe Biden. And then, like everything else he inherited, he ran it straight into the ground. Republicans are blasting Harris as an extremist. Trump 2020 campaign spokesperson Tim Murtaugh says Biden and Harris make up, in his words, the most extreme leftist ticket in American major party history. Biden and Harris are scheduled to accept the Democratic nomination at the National Party Convention next week. Reporting for Pacifica Radio News KPFA, I'm Christopher Martinez. House Democrats on Wednesday threatened to subpoena top officials at the U.S. Census Bureau after they refused to give interviews to an oversight committee over why the deadline for the 2020 census has been moved up a month to the end of September. Lawmakers had requested that interviews take place in August with top bureau officials, including two recent hires for newly created positions whose appointments critics say were part of the Trump administration's efforts to politicize the agency. Democrats on the Oversight Committee have asked Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross to withdraw the appointments of Nathaniel Cogley and Adam Korzeniewski. The committee also wanted to ask Census Bureau officials about President Trump's order seeking to exclude people in the U.S. illegally from the process of redrawing congressional districts. Civil rights groups have filed multiple lawsuits challenging the memorandum as unconstitutional and an attempt to limit the power of Latinos and immigrants of color. Because of pandemic-related delays with the 2020 census, the Census Bureau had requested deadline extensions from Congress and had planned to end the headcount at the end of October. But with the request stalled in Congress, the Census Bureau announced earlier this month that it would end the 2020 census at the end of September. Thousands of people were back on the streets of Belarus's capital, Minsk, today to keep protesting against a vote that extended the 26-year rule of the country's authoritarian leader, Alexander Lukashenko. The government has staged a brutal crackdown on peaceful demonstrations. Nearly 7,000 people have been detained and hundreds have been injured in the police crackdown on demonstrators protesting the official results of Sunday's ballot that gave Lukashenko 80% of the vote and his top opposition challenger only 10%. Opposition leaders and international election observers have decried the vote as rigged. EU foreign ministers will meet Friday to consider possible sanctions. 
Lithuanian Foreign Minister Linus Lenkovicius told Sky News that it's time for political action against Belarus. I personally think that yet another statement about deep concern will not fly and, uh, you know, doesn't work, basically. But definitely, if we mean what we're saying, it should be some political consequences. The Interior Ministry reported 700 new detentions late Wednesday and overnight, bringing the total number of detainees to 6,700 since Sunday. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the election in Belarus wasn't free or fair and urged the government to refrain from violence against peaceful protesters. The number of laid-off workers applying for unemployment aid fell below 1 million for the first time since the pandemic intensified in March, though applications were made at an extraordinarily high level. The Labor Department said that applications fell to 963,000, with with the second straight drop from 1.2 million the previous week. The decline suggests that layoffs are slowing, though last week's figures are still above the pre-pandemic record of just under 700,000. Los Angeles County officials are set to launch a $100 million rent relief program next week for low-income renters affected by the coronavirus pandemic. KPFK's Ernesto Arce reports. The money comes from federal COVID-19 relief funds to be managed by the L.A. County Development Authority and will be paid directly to landlords to settle unpaid rent. County officials said they hope the program will help 8,000 to 9,000 households. The program will open Monday and remain open for two weeks to provide emergency rental assistance for low-income renters who are struggling as a result of the health and economic crisis. A lottery for eligible applicants will be held at the end of the application period. Los Angeles residents are not eligible as the city received its own allocation of federal funds for its residents. The program will apply to residential properties only. Residents unable to pay their rent and living on 30% of the median income can receive up to $10,000. Those at 50% of the median income can receive up to $7,500. In Los Angeles, I'm Ernesto Arce, Pacifica Radio, KPFK. And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and those were our news headlines. Now, you will hear audio from the press briefing entitled Unleashing the Power of Poor and Low-Income Americans. The report, released on August 11, 2020, uses nationally representative data to illustrate the potential voting power of low-income people in the United States. During the first half of today's show, you will hear remarks by the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris and the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II, co-chairs of the Poor People's Campaign. You will also hear from Robert Paul Hartley, an assistant professor of social work at Columbia University who authored the report. Let's hear from them now. Thank you so much uh, for everyone joining us today. Um, It's really an honor to be able to share this groundbreaking report with you all. For the last three years, the Poor People's Campaign has been organizing among the 140 million Americans in poverty, or one emergency away from poverty, who have decided it's time to build the power to change this country. Last month, when the Poor People's Campaign held the mass Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington, three million people joined on social media alone. Before this assembly, we held the first ever Poor People's Moral Action Congress. We've testified in front of caucuses and committees, including presenting our budget and agenda to the House Budget Committee. We've been engaging in grassroots, mobilizing, organizing, registering, and educating poor and low-income people, advocates, activists, moral leaders, and clergies. And we organized the largest and most expansive wave of nonviolent civil disobedience at state capitals in the 21st century when we launched the Poor People's Campaign and have stayed in action ever since. We are building the political power and the moral vision to reconstruct America. And this groundbreaking new report we're releasing today proves empirically what we've always known. Poor and low-income people can become a transformative new electorate. All across the country, poor and low-income people are demanding accountable representation and trying to save the very soul of this democracy. In Louisiana's St. James Parish, 
in Michigan's deindustrialized cities of Detroit and Flint, community leaders are pledging to vote for candidates who confront the petrochemical disaster in Cancer Alley or the water crisis in Michigan. Low-wage workers in North Carolina and Florida and Wisconsin are demanding policies of living wages, paid sick leave, and union rights. Homeless students in California, Massachusetts, and Virginia are calling on our political system to stand for public education, for debt relief, for housing programs, for housing rights, and voting rights. Small town people in Pennsylvania and Alabama insist that candidates must keep rural hospitals open and must enact universal health care. Over the next three months, the Poor People's Campaign will intensify our work amongst poor and low-income voters, especially in, in states with key U.S. Senate races. We're rolling out a campaign to expand our base, register millions of voters, and protect voting rights. As we in the Poor People's Campaign say and sing, somebody's been hurting our people, it's gone on far too long, and we can't and won't be silent anymore. This report and our movement that's growing across this nation shows just this. Good afternoon to everyone. And indeed, we, this report declares we are unleashing the power of the poor and low-income Americans. We thank Rob, our professor from uh, Columbia University, who has been so critical in working with this, and also attorney economist Shala Gupta Barnes. Changing the political landscape uh, is critical. What we are saying in this movement is that poverty and low income uh, are not marginal issues. They're not marginal issues. 140 million people are poor and low income before COVID even happened. Uh, we also know that the interlocking injustices that must be addressed simultaneously are not marginal issues. That is systemic racism in all of its forms, how it impacts black people, brown people, indigenous people, uh, system, systemic poverty, uh, 140 million poor and low wealth people in this country, 66 million white, 26 million African-American, but that 26 million African-Americans is 60% of African-Americans. So we know that in raw numbers, it's more white uh, that are poor and low wealth but in percentage and impact of race and disparate treatment is African-Americans and Latinos. Uh, five million people get up every morning can buy unleaded gas. Four million people can get up every morning buy unleaded gas, can't buy unleaded water. So ecological devastation must be addressed. We have 87 million people in this country, uninsured or underinsured healthcare must be addressed. We have a war economy, a war economy where we spend 54 cents of the 53 cents of every discretionary dollar on the war economy and less than 16 cents of every discretionary dollar on healthcare, infrastructure, and education must be addressed. And this false moral narrative of religious nationalism that suggests that, that, that real moral issues are not allowing women to have the right to choose, being against gay people, being against uh, uh, um, um, being for prayer in the school, being for guns, and being for tax cuts and not really the real deep issues of our deepest religious values in the Constitution, which are how we treat the poor and how we do justice. These are not marginal issues. They must be in the center of our political debate. And far too long, they have been left out and to the side. We also know that what we talk about is, is before the pandemic. The pandemic has shown us that poverty and racism are the fissures, are the wounds through which this pandemic has power. And now we're headed toward 50% of Americans being poor and low wealth. Another 27 million people have been added to the, uh, have lost their insurance. 30 million people who are, uh, have been uh, unemployed and, and, and seek needing unemployment. And what we have in this moment and what we're seeing is that the poor people were in a depression before COVID, and now we all have a kind of economic annihilation going on. And that's why our campaign says we must have moral analysis. We must have moral articulation. And we have, must have moral action, uh, protesting and voting, moral action. And we, re we, we declare that these are moral fusion issues. They cannot be separated. We know. Uh, that Trump and McConnell uh, have, have an all-out disdain and have created a war on the poor. 
a war on poor and low wealth people, choosing to feed corporations and let poor and low people suffer uh, and, call, and, and suffer in the midst of a pandemic and even before. But we also challenged Democrats and declared that neoliberalism and declaring that you're gonna take care of the middle class is not enough. Uh, we, when we look at this report, we, we raise the question. We see Governor Kasich, who, for instance, led in voter suppression, led in welfare reform that undermined poor and low-wealth people in this country, being given a major place uh, in this upcoming convention. But the question is, will poor and low-wealth people, the 140 million poor and low-wealth people, have a major place on the platform and at the convention? So we are challenging both parties to say you cannot ignore poor and low wealth people anymore. But more than just challenging them, poor and low wealth people in this movement have decided we must do more. We must mobilize, organize, register, and educate. We must vote in November. We must be engaged after November. We are not going, poor and low wealth people are saying, we are not going to be ignored anymore. As, as Liz said, from Alabama to, the, to, the, to Appalachia, from California to Carolina, from Mississippi to Maine, poor and low wealth people understand some fundamental facts, both about the reality that poverty does not have to exist, uh, it is not inevitable. It is created by bad public policy. But this report also lets poor and low wealth people know, and the reason we all uh, decided to um, call for it is that, this, for instance, the Senate is in play. The Senate is in play, and poor folk have the power to make the play. That's what this report shows, that the poor and low wealth people have the power to expand and change the electorate. This report shows that there were 34 million poor and low-income people who were eligible to vote in 2016 who did not vote. This means that poor and low-income people concentrate over 25% of the electorate. We want the media to hear that over 25%. These poor and low-wealth people are not marginal issues, and their issues are not marginal issues. And this report shows us that in a number of states, in the North and in the Midwest and in the South, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, New Hampshire, Arizona, Minnesota, Maine, Florida, New Mexico, North Carolina, Nevada, Georgia, Texas, Mississippi, Ohio, it, it, that anywhere between 1% and 19% change in the number of poor and low-wealth people voting who did not vote could fundamentally shift the political calculus in this country. It is political suicide, it is political foolishness not to reach out to poor and low wealth people. Not only is it the immoral thing to do, not only is it economically insane, it is politically, politically wrong. It is politically wrong not to reach out to poor and low wealth people. And what we know is which we have traveled, as Liz said, all over this country, poor and low wealth people have often said that two things impact their voting. First of all, suppression disability, transportation, the fact that we don't open up the ballot box for everybody, an opportunity for everybody. But also the greater thing is they do not hear politicians talk about their, their condition, their situation. Lastly, in Kentucky, we were in Harlan County and, and it was claimed so-called Trump County. But when we went there, we talked to poor and low wealth people and they said to us, Nobody has come to see us since Lyndon Baines Johnson came here and began the, 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 the war on poverty. That is a moral travesty for the wealthiest nation in this country to leave 43% of its people untalked about, uh, their issues unaddressed. And poor people and low-income people who are on this call, a number of them who are going to speak at the end after you hear the authors of the report, are going to tell you that they have decided they are not going to wait anymore just for the politicians to acknowledge them. They are going to change the narrative. They are going to be a power. They are going to vote in a way that their power will be expressed. They've already done it in Kentucky. Check the word. They've already done it in Kentucky. We saw it happen in the Moral Monday movement in North Carolina, and it's going to happen all over this country because we cannot any longer, any longer refuse to have addressing systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism at the center, at the center of our political discourse and our political uh, uh, um, decision. 
if we do, we do it to the full damage of the heart and soul and the economic vitality of this nation. Thank you so much. My name is Rob Hartley, and uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very glad to be with you today. So my, I'm an economist that teaches at the School of Social Work. I teach economics and social policy. And usually my research is on how poverty affects uh, people's lives, how, how policy affects poverty and those living in poverty. So this is an interesting uh, opportunity to really think about how people with low income could influence social policy. So I, I, I see this as an exciting uh, project. And I'm just gonna give a brief overview of some of the, the key findings. Uh, so starting off, I just wanna compare some trends about uh, how, how much people are voting. But the trends show a couple of things. One, uh, there is a big difference, right? There's uh, higher income folks are about 20 percentage points more likely to vote. But the other thing that stood out to me was, it's not that uh, folks with low income are just not voting and they're not responsive, right? Because the, the trends over time kind of move together saying that they, they do respond to changes in the economy, changes in uh, the candidates and issues. And in fact, you can see that in the most recent election for the 2018 midterm, the four-year increase in voting participation was about 10 percentage points for both groups, for low income and for higher income. So there's this opportunity for mobilization. They, they are responsive. They do move uh, kind of in tandem together. So the question is, uh, what's going on with this large group of the population who's not voting? And, uh, and so partly this report wants to just kind of establish um, how large is this group? And, uh, and then kind of move toward why they're not voting or how that might make a difference. If you take all of the low income people who are eligible to vote, but not voting, how large is this group compared to the total electorate, everyone eligible to vote? So low income non-voters are a substantial part of the total electorate in, in a lot of uh, important states. Low income non-voters are one out of five of all vote, uh, voting eligible in states like Arkansas, uh, Tennessee, and in cold country states like Kentucky and West Virginia. So, so, so first, just establishing this group is a large relative to the total electorate. But then the next question is, well, how can we compare the size of low income non-voters to recent margins of victory, right? So, so we can start to think about the question of uh, how much this might matter in an election. Basically, the, the percent of low-income non-voters that would have to participate in election that would equal the margin of victory in the 2016 presidential election. Take Michigan uh, as an example. Only 1% of low-income non-voters, if they moved to the polls and voted, they would in total equal the recent margin of victory in the 2016 election. And in Pennsylvania, it's just 4%, it's just 4%. But then you could also see in states like Florida, if only 7% of those low-income non-voters voted, that would equal the margin of victory in Florida. But the tricky part is we don't know how someone might vote. And we're not saying that everyone will vote the same way out of this group. Um, so I think there's a good probability that low-income non-voters are actually different from those who are voting. And, um, and, and we, we know from other research that they're very likely to be interested in, in issues related to healthcare or income security. Um, but then to ask the question of how they might matter, uh, I thought of this experiment of just saying, okay, what if low income electorate voted at the same participation rate as higher income voters? And then how much of those new voters would it take to swing the margin of victory in, 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 a, in a certain election in a certain state. If low-income non-voters showed up, or if the low-income electorate showed up at a similar uh, voting participation rate as higher-income folks, then how many of those new voters, what proportion of them would have to vote against whoever might have won in the 2016 election to change the outcome? So if they all voted just 50-50 for the two candidates, then there's no change that would happen. But as you can see in Michigan, just 51%, a simple majority of those new voters uh, could change the outcome there. And, and in Pennsylvania, it would just be 55%. Um, so again, all of these would have to be greater than 50% to, to change that outcome. 
But we're not saying that it would have to be 100%. We're not saying that everyone would all vote for one party or, or even for which party they would vote. It could swing the election in 10 states that were previously Republican or in five states that were previously Democrat. Um, but then the key also is you can see states like Florida, North Carolina, and Georgia, um, they would have to have a majority of 70% or around 80% to be able to change that outcome. And, um, and the state is not suggesting that these outcomes would change or that all of the states would change, but there's enough potential out there that if there's a small margin in a certain state, this low-income population could be really pivotal if candidates are speaking to them. And I may not have time to kind of get into some of the other results of the report, but uh, we do talk about why people aren't voting, why they report not voting. They may have multiple reasons they don't vote, but there's a lot of similarity between low income and high income in terms of not being interested in the candidates or issues, not thinking they might matter. Although we know that illness or disability is more important for low income population and there are other um, voting uh, constraints and voter suppression that I, I don't get into. Um, but I'd also just like to throw out that voting by mail, there are no differences in voting by mail by income status, as you can uh, maybe see here in these middle lines. Uh, but all, all voting by mail has been increasing over time uh, for across multiple demographics. And the studies show that there's no uh, partisan bias in, in outcomes by voting by mail. So um, for this next election, I think it's really important to, to be doing the work that the campaign is doing and increasing voting accessibility, um, uh, increasing participation. And, and, and lastly, I'd just like to close by saying that I see these data as an opportunity to really support uh, the very important stories and, and personal narratives that um, folks that are following me are about to share. And uh, I'm honored to uh, share in uh, this, this uh, process with you. So thank you. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a quick station break. When we return, we will continue hearing more from the special Unleashing the Power of Poor and Low-Income Americans, a report uh, put out by the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome Welcome back to Sojourner Truth. Check us out on our website at sotrueradio.org. If you're on Facebook, you can look for us and like us there. We're also on SoundCloud. You can go to the search bar and type in Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott to find us. And today I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Louisville, Kentucky. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Puerto Rico. Now, we return to audio from the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival entitled Unleashing the Power of Poor and Low-Income Americans. During the second half of today's program, you will hear from Shali Gupta-Barnes, a policy director for the Poor People's Campaign, as well as remarks from first-time voters and impacted speakers. Included among them are Sarah, a mother of six in North Carolina who works in fast food, Melissa from Mississippi who comes from a conservative family, Natalia, a Colombian immigrant woman living in Wisconsin, Tiffany, a disabled and indigenous descended woman in Kentucky, and Tanya Fogel, a grandmother from Kentucky who was formerly incarcerated. You will also hear some final remarks from the Reverend Liz Theo Harris and the Reverend Dr. Barber. Let's hear from them now. This report should remind us of what's at stake in November and how, how it's not just a question of what political party wins in these elections, but how and when the issues of the 140 million 
poor and low-income people become part of the political agenda, become come to the center of the political agenda. And while this report looks at the impact of those 34 million people among the 100 million who didn't vote, um, and is, as far as I know, the only report that looks at this segment of the electorate, it, it focuses just on, just on their participation. But we know that if that segment started moving around issues that have now become everybody's issues, issues of healthcare, issues of economic well-being and security and housing, then, then there, there is also the potential of that segment to move and pull other voters in that direction. And so this report is actually a conservative estimate of the potential impact of these voters um, in, in November and beyond. And, and as we say in the appendix, we had to actually work with certain um, limitations in the data that underestimates the size of the low-income electorate. If we use the poverty measure that the campaign uses, the supplemental poverty measure, which is the preferred measure among the research community, the size of the low-income electorate would be bigger, 25 to 45% bigger, meaning its potential could go even beyond those 15 or 16 states that are indicated in this report. Um, so ultimately, you know, what we're showing here is the, a story about equality and representation, how we have to look carefully at a system that systematically neglects a quarter of its electorate, and also how we have we must organize to build power among those millions of people, among these 34 million non-voters, among the poor and low-income people in this country to unleash that potential and secure our rightful place in this democracy and our nation's politics. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, I think it's really important that you know everybody has a chance and opportunity to speak about these things. So originally I'm from New Jersey. Um, I was born and raised there and then I moved here about 14 years ago. Um, and I was raised by a very good, conservative, beautiful Republican family who taught me a lot of things. And I realized when I got here that here in North Carolina, it's so different. You know, I'm a hard worker. I've worked hard all of my life. I had a job since I was seven, um, worked in, you know, came up out of high school, had two jobs in high school, came to the South, you know, and I went from medical field to not being able to find a job right back into restaurant. And noticing the indifference between one platform and another, it made me recognize, Sarah, this is not about your work ethic. broke because you don't work hard. You're broke because there's something wrong with the system. And so I started to pay attention. So being from two different eras, you know, again, from New Jersey to here, when I moved to the South, I realized how indifferent it was comparative to what I was taught my whole life. And it was, and it's me being as broke as I am, working as hard as I am for as long as I have. It's not about me. It's about something going on inside of this country. And it's, you know, it's the powers that be. And so I began to pay attention to you work hard, but you're only getting $3.15 an hour as a waitress at Waffle House versus where the still the minimum wage if I went and did something else would only be 725. Why is that? What is going on? Why are we being suffocated as in our abilities to grow because there's no reason for us to be broke. There's no reason for anybody to be poor. Poor is not a person. People work hard. They fight for their families as I have always done. I was broke prior to the pandemic. I'm broke during the pandemic. Why am I going to feel that I have to be broke after a pandemic? None of this is my fault. And so I decided to become NC Raise Up, a worker leader in there, get my voice out there, educate myself. My parents always taught me plant a seed. When you plant a seed, this will grow. And so I'm going to plant myself into this economy, into educating myself, working hard and fighting further for people that are going through the same instances that I'm going through. And I realized one voice out of millions of people is one more voice that needs to be heard. And I took my fears of being a broke person feeling like that I, sh I shouldn't speak because you know I you know I'm broke they don't want to hear me I'm not part of the bigger picture but I am the biggest picture of us all we are all part of the bigger picture because we all matter we are all important and we all deserve to have our voices heard our work ethic respected our skin color protected our our, our, our we have every right to be a part of something so much more than ourselves. Our healthcare, I have a sick husband, I have children with asthma. Why am I not included in the bigger picture? But my vote matters. So I'm coming for my politicians. I'm coming forth to say, if you're not gonna pay attention, I'm gonna make you because I'm here and I'm here for a good reason. 
So I grew up in a working class family from Mississippi um, on the Gulf Coast. And when we talk about the war economy, um, our town is fully is mostly supported by um, a shipyard that uh, is contracted for for Navy ships. Um, and then also um, by a oil refinery, which is a war on our economy. Um, but yet people in the town or in our town, we still have homelessness. We have so many without health care. We have, um, uh, you know, people paycheck to paycheck or, you know, not, not even making it paycheck to paycheck. Um, so what are we what are we defending um, when we're building these Navy ships? I mean, most of the people that work there have to retire, um, don't get to retire till like later in life. Um, and the ships retire way sooner than they do and never work a day. Um, so we're not defending the people that matter in this town. And so that's why um, that's why I'm here um, to, to push from Mississippi amongst many other reasons that um, Mississippi needs help. I'm Natalia Fajardo, and I migrated from Colombia to the U.S. at 16, uh, where I've been fighting for immigrant rights and environmental justice for over 10 years. And when I moved to Wisconsin in 2008, I tried to sign up for Badger Care, which is our state healthcare program, but we didn't qualify because my partner made $18,000 a year. That was $1,000 more than the cutoff. And this is a direct result of Governor Walker's refusal to expand Medicaid. So I organized with the Poor People's Campaign because most of the hardships that poor immigrants face, like precarious jobs, lack of healthcare, unhealthy environment, unsecured housing, and voter suppression are also the reality for poor non-immigrants. So our movement to confront these hardships must include and unite those that don't look like me, but suffer like me. And to talk more specifically about the issue at hand, I wanted to be a poll worker for the April 7th primary election. So I ended up in February. But right when the pandemic hit, um, they called me from the Milwaukee mayor's office and the, the election commission to confirm my participation in a training. And when I asked for their safety protocol in that training, they had nothing. They hadn't thought of any way to protect poll workers. So then we saw on April 7th, the complete disregard of people's lives when they move forward with in-person voting, with long lines and dozens of COVID outbreak cases um, linked to that event. I also just wanna share that I organized with the campaign because voting is only one piece of the change-making puzzle. If voters are mobilized only around their vote, what happens November 4th? We need to be active, organizing, holding uh, all elected officials accountable and getting people involved in many more ways than just voting. So I'm a disabled woman in Eastern Kentucky. Um, I'm poor and I'm part of this movement because right before, um, like healthcare has always been this force in my life that has been um, very necessary, but also very scary because politicians hold my life in their hands at all times and have, um, chosen to withhold care at different points because my life is expensive um, and I'm part of the poor people's campaign because for example right before I uh, right before COVID-19 hit I was in Washington DC lobbying on behalf of people with rare diseases and when I was in front of Mitch McConnell I looked at him in his eyes and I told him you have the ability senator to make sure that children get a chance to grow up in Kentucky. Isn't that a beautiful thing to be a part of? And it didn't matter to him. <laughs> and I had to watch as COVID-19 hit, and not only did he not vote for the legislature that I was there to advocate for, he voted repeatedly against the people of Kentucky, against the children of Kentucky, against the people suffering with COVID-19 in Kentucky. And I had to think back to that moment where I, I gave him every bit of, of my heart and my pain. He could have listened, and he didn't. And instead, he sent me an 8 by 10 of uh, him and the group together in a photo that I didn't want to take. I'm part of the campaign because I want, I want to confront that notion that you can just shove us out the door and that we don't, what we say doesn't really matter. I am like Esther. I'm leading my people. I am a formerly incarcerated person with a felony in their past, and I am going to be that big Q-tip 
for the Poor People's Campaign here in Kentucky, get that damn wax out of his ear, and we're going after those policies, and we will mobilize, and there's a whole list of demands, and I'll follow up with that, but thank you for letting me be on here. Somebody's hurting our people across this nation, and especially in Kentucky, we're ashamed of you, Mitch McConnell, and it's gone on far too long, and it's time to make a change. Thank you. Yeah, let me say a word about our organizing plan and, and Reverend Liz and I. Some things we, we won't tell everything. We know that if 19% of eligible voters in, uh, in North Carolina would vote at the rate of higher income people, uh, they could match or exceed the margin. That's the first thing we wanted to see. You know, can could poor and low wealth people who have not vote, voted overcome the margin of victory? Because we're not having candidates at the presidential level or the Senate level or even the government level winning by large margins, particularly in the South. You know, Trump only won by 100 and some thousand votes in North Carolina. But there are a million, several million poor and low-income people in North Carolina did not vote primarily because we believe they did not hear their issues. And then, of course, because of suppression. We know that the government of North Carolina only won by 10,000 votes, where there are millions of people eligible voters who did not vote. So that's the first thing that we're saying. It's not as though um, uh, this is this is impossible. The fact of the matter is the number of eligible poor and low wealth voters who have the potential to be organized around an agenda can far exceed the, the margin of victory uh, in the past election if you just simply look at it based on raw numbers. So one of the things we had early on, we've been organizing for three years. That's why we've been building from the bottom up, not from the top down. We have 46 coordinating committees in every state. Every one of those coordinating committees is connected to a minimum of 30,000 people that they can then have through social media and others that can be used as a powerful tool to do call-ins and voter push-out and registration, even though that's a little bit different now in COVID. We also did, had a study done that went down to the county level and looked at what would need, what percentage of voters, what percent of voters would need to come out in, in, in counties to change the course of the election? And what we know, and as far as I'll go with some of our battle plan, is that in fact of the matter is the only place you can expand the electorate is among poor and low income voters, well, the biggest place you can expand it. And because poor and low income voters just on numbers are not some, some sideshow, they're not some small little bit, as you heard, over a fifth, almost a fourth of the electorate of potential voters. And we, we know that just small percentages can have tremendous impact all the way up the ticket, all the way up the ticket, and, 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 and especially at the Senate and the presidential level. As we say, the Senate is at play, and poor folk have the power to make the play, really, and have the power to shift the South, which is almost not talked about at all, even though in the South, if you just take the 13 former Confederate states, that's over 168 electoral votes. Well, one third of poor people live in the South, one third of poor white people live in the South, and if poor and low wealth white and black and brown people in the South were fundamentally organized around an agenda and voted, it could have major impact all across the South. And if you change at least just three or four states in the South, you fundamentally shift the political calculus and how we understand political victories in this country. We're doing permanently organized. We're not, we're not just organizing for 2020. We've been organized for three years. We've been fighting. We're going to continue because we're organizing to be a permanently organized community. We already have 46 states in the District of Columbia. And we're also organizing to put pressure on after the election. And we're also organizing to continue to be a power. June 2020, if you didn't see it in the streets because of COVID and because of what we needed to do, because we were putting a face on, on poverty in this country. But two, three million people showed up for a mass poor people's assembly tomorrow march on Washington digitally. Three million people and over half million people took action around voter registration, around pushing our moral uh, um, uh, agenda for the healing of the nation. This is very, very serious work, and people are responding in very, very serious ways. That's one of the reasons we've been having Marl Monday march on McConnell for all the meanness, mayhem, and misery he's creating because he could get together and use his power in the Senate and forget being Republican and being, being a good American, being a constitutionalist, and join with 
Pelosi and make the president stop what he's doing and, and they could stop this. And so we're, 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 number one, we're putting a lot of pressure there. Number two, we're building a voter protection program with some of the best lawyers because we're going to be prepared to go to court if necessary uh, if, if, if these uh, things are done to undermine poor people. And we may have to do that prior to the election to make sure that some things do not happen because this is illegal. It is violation of the 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law. It's a violation of the 15th Amendment that says no state can, can deny or abridge uh, the right to vote. But we're also looking at a state-to-state state, 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 state basis. For instance, in North Carolina, you've got early voting. So not only can people do mail-in, they can do early voting, which is going to be safer. People can use their PPEs. They can use the social distancing. And we're telling folks, whatever you do, if anybody's fighting this hard to keep you from voting, you have to vote. And we're teaching, we're training, we've been doing training and been doing registration of people how to do the mail-in voting. We have a big, big, massive gathering coming up September 14th, where we're gonna uh, have, like we did on June 20th, uh, millions of people join for an online in-house training. Uh, uh, some of the best lawyers, the best political operatives uh, for what is going on. But remember, poor and low-income people have faced suppression in every election. Racist voter suppression, while targeted at black people, also hurts poor white people and brown people. And what is even more sinister is that those who use racist voter suppression, once they get elected, they, they use their power to deny health care, deny living wages, which hurts mostly white people in raw numbers, black people in terms of percentage. And the more people understand that, they're starting to see that racist voter suppression is targeted at black and brown people, but ultimately is targeted at our, at our democracy. And the people are starting to find out if someone, as we say in the country, if you scratch a lie, you'll find the thief. Well, racism is a lie. So if you scratch a racist, you'll also find the thief that'll steal your uh, unemployment, that'll steal your health care, that'll steal your living wage, that'll try to steal your voting rights. And so one of the biggest things we're doing to fight back against the attempt to, to, to be suppressed is informing people how much power we have. And it's amazing how the more people see this data and see how much power poor and low-income people have and see that it's not that, that you have to win everybody. It's not you have to have 100%. More and more poor people and low-income people are saying, we're going to do what we always had to do. We're going to fight. We're going to put our masks on. We're going to put our gloves on. We're going to mail in. We're going to do whatever we have to do because guess what? Our lives are on the line every day anyway. 700 people die every day from poverty, even before COVID, from poverty and low wealth, according to another study by the Mailman School of Public Policy at Columbia University. This really is about life and death. So we're going to fight in the courts. We're going to fight with educating people on, on voter protection and voter participation. We're going to fight by mobilizing. We're going to fight by doing everything we can to protect ourselves from COVID but to also participate in the vote and people are going to turn out because they understand that there is an all-out war against the poor and the poor people are already in a great depression before poverty. What we're facing now is a great destruction and a great annihilation and people are not going to sit still for it, particularly when we know from report this report and many others that we have the power, the power to shift and to alter political outcomes in this country. The Poor People's Campaign is organizing Senate town halls in eight states, um, predominantly southern states and some midwestern states, um, all of them a part of this report, right? Um, we, uh, uh, based on, on the data that we got from this report, based on the organizing on the ground, um, we can send that list of states to you um, and we will be announcing you know, our plans. Uh, I also just want to connect that and, and the Senate races to this larger uh, learning really from this report and from the organizing that we're doing. Um, when, when, we're, when folks pose the question, you know, how do people uh, come together and not vote against their own interests? What we're showing in this report is indeed because this political system has really disenfranchised voters, you know, through voter suppression and, and through, you know, higher problems around transportation and childcare and living wage jobs, um, but also because, uh, um, you know, we do not hear the agenda items that poor and low income voters need to be hearing in our political system today. 
we from the beginning of this Poor People's Campaign have raised that in national debates and state debates around um, elections, we do not hear uh, the issues of poverty, of oppression, of living wages, of healthcare. Um, uh, you know, the, the primary issues that, that impact actually the majority of people in this country, but starting with the poor and low income. Um, you know, we can have 30 televised debates uh, uh, that are happening and not one of them take up even for 15, 20 minutes, let alone an hour of a debate on these issues. Um, and, and what we've, we've said, as, as Reverend Barber said at, at the beginning, we, we see politicians running from these issues. Um, but what we're doing is putting together an agenda, an agenda that speaks about universal health care, that speaks about living wages, about decent education, about strong safety net programs uh, uh, that connects to saving the earth, to saving our economy, um, and, and says, you know, this is all possible. Um, what we've seen in this pandemic is trillions of dollars going to the wealthiest and to corporations and, and letting poor people, low-income people, you know, millions and millions and millions of people just have to fend for ourselves. Um, but, you, but this lie that we can't do any better, this lie that, that poor people are to blame for all of society's problems, this lie that all we do is fight each other, that, that is, is not true. We, what we're seeing across the country, from the hood to the holler in Kentucky, from California to the Carolinas, across this, across this nation, people are coming together in broad and bold ways across all the lines that have historically divided. And, and sometimes you don't hear it in the media, but we're showing in this report and we're showing in our organizing on the ground that, that poor and low-income people are already changing the narrative and have the potential to transform this entire political landscape, including in these Senate races um, where, where candidates are coming forward interested in the needs and demands. But we need a lot more. That's right. um, we need this political system to actually be a democracy, to actually speak to the needs and realities and demands of the entire nation. And that includes half of the U.S. population that is experiencing poverty before COVID and so many more as we enter into, you know, perhaps what's going to be the greatest economic depression this country has ever seen. Um, and that's coupled with racist violence, that's coupled with climate chaos, that's coupled, you know, with the worst public health crisis in a century. And so, so you know, this report is showing uh, this power of people coming together and, and, and we want our nation and our political candidates and campaigns and parties to pay attention uh, to, to those who have been disappeared, who have been ignored, who have been excluded and exploited, uh, but who are uh, uh, saving the, the, the soul of, of this democracy and of this very nation. And Rob, as we close, I want to give those those states again to the the ones where one percent to nineteen percent uh, that's really uh, where the Senate races. Now we we're not going to make the mistake of 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 what parties have made is just choosing certain states. But we know from the report and reporter, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, New Hampshire, Arizona, Minnesota, Maine, Florida, New Mexico, North Carolina, Nevada, Georgia, Texas, Mississippi, and Ohio. Those are the states where you need less than 20% of low-income eligible voters uh, to meet the margin uh, that could match or exceed the presidential election margin of victory in those states, one, between 1% one and 19%. And we're, we have organizing going on in all of those areas in a powerful way. I think, Liz, as you rightfully said, um, we also are not just saying to politicians, if you don't speak, we're not gonna move. What we, our campaign is we must do more. So poor and low income people are saying, no more will we be silent, no more will we be quiet, no more will we be, not be present at the polls, present in the debate. We must mobilize, organize, register, and educate people for the movement who vote and, and who are engaged. And, and you mentioned lastly, Liz, you said, you know, you may not hear it. You know, as we said, three million people showed up on June 20th, three million people showed up for a mass poor people's assembly moral march on washington digitally we we couldn't do it in the street because what we wanted to do was to have poor and low-income people speak clearly and the nation hear them telling their stories making their demand so you can go to that by going to www june 2020 and see 
poor and low-income income people saying, we did you know, and here's our story, and therefore we demand. This is not a liberal movement, it's not a conservative movement, it's not a right or left. This is a deeply moral, deeply constitutional movement of people who are saying, we will not be marginalized anymore. And I hope that the members of the media will question, particularly as we go into these, um, these presidential conventions, these party conventions, it will be shameful if in the midst of 43% before COVID, upwards of 50% doing that either party does not mention and deal with in a serious way the issue of poverty and low income. But if they don't, we're still gonna be pushing and still gonna be voting because we won't be silent anymore and we're gonna demand that these issues be in the center of the narrative of this democracy. We're out of time. I'd like to thank all of the speakers featured in today's uh, program and a special thanks to the Poor People's Campaign and National Call for Moral Revival. We are very glad to be able to air their audio. I would also like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, Romero Funes, our assistant producer, and today's audio engineer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at one 800 735 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. And remember, you can visit our website, sotrueradio.org, and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, our handle there, at SoTrueRadio. Thank you so much for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and y'all, please stay safe. KBOO Portland, and this is Radio Zine. I'm Jenny Yokoyama. Earlier this week, Demetria Hester, activist and head organizer for Moms United for Black Lives, was arrested during a protest in North Portland. Hester has been a consistent presence.